Hi everyone. Welcome back to Caribbean Progress, a podcast of the Caribbean Progress Studies Institute (CPSI). Today, I am speaking with Tian Yufang, a fellow of CPSI and an avid tech journalist, with his writings appearing in The Atlantic, Wired, Vice, South China Morning Post, and others. Previously, he was a co-founder of Chaoyang Trap House, a newsletter about life on the Chinese internet. He covered tech, politics, and culture as a freelance journalist in Beijing. In this episode, we discuss Caribbean citizenship by investment programs, or CBIs. This is a topic gaining lots of attention recently from foreign government officials and public policy organizations across the world. But they seem to have had a hard time sorting out the facts from fiction. So. In this episode, we aim to lay the groundwork for a more serious conversation about CBA programs in the Caribbean. There is a lot to cover on this fascinating topic, so on to the show. Hi, Tianyu. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rashi. I'm glad to be here. So I want to talk about this very fun topic. Of course, in many circles, it's considered to be a very controversial topic, topic that kind of brings up anxiety on many sides of the table. And it's a generally fairly obscure topic. It's not a thing that people usually have podcasts about in the first place. It's a very nerdy topic for sure. <laughs> it definitely is. So before we even get into any of the nerdy details, I want to start with the general landscape of the citizenship by investment programs in the Caribbean. There are only five countries that do it. But before we kind of get into it, can you give an overview of what these are and actually where can you find them? Sure. To start with, I think it'd be nice to give an overview of what exactly are these citizenship by investment programs. And specifically here, we're talking about countries that have legal grounds to sell passports directly to foreign investors where a person from Russia or United States or China could pay somewhere between $100,000 to three or four times upwards to acquire a passport from a country that they may or may not have ever been to. So in the Caribbean, we have five countries that does this. One, Antigua and Barbuda. We have St. Kitts and Nevis. We have St. Lucia and then Dominica and Grenada. So these are the five countries that have been doing these programs legally. And St. Kitts and Nevis was the first country that started their program back in the 1980s. It's been around for quite a while. And, you know, surprisingly, even in the Caribbean, we don't hear much about it. Growing up in the Caribbean or just living in the Caribbean, it's not a topic that comes up in politics conversations, I guess, for the countries where I'm from, Barbados. But sometimes, let's say, a scandal <laughs> might happen and it might come up in news so then the prime minister or a senior government official might respond to the allegations in some country. And I remember very vividly, I don't even know why this comes up so clear in my memory. But I remember a news report, an interview with the prime minister of St. Vincent and the Grandines, Ralph Gonzalez. He was talking about how St. Vincent would never do this passport sale CBI system. And I remember he said a line that I'll never forget. He said, the passport is a outward representation of the inward grace of citizenship. You know, very elegant line, very graceful line. Well, it's somewhat bullshit, but they do very odd things themselves. But I'll never forget that line. And 
it was like a very strong stance saying, hey, we are not going to do this route. But it also gives me the impression that there is a seedy undertone that some people do get in their minds when they think about CBI programs. So why do you think that these CBI programs even came up as a rational economic policy action in the Caribbean? What's your view on that? First of all, to talk about this sort of controversy in the case that you discussed, there's always been sort of a holy type of language around the idea of citizenship and what it means to be a citizen of a nation state. You recommended uh, Christian Kalin's dissertation to me. And Christian Kalin, for those who don't know, is the CEO of this immigration consultancy called Henley and Partners. And they were basically the pioneers in this business of citizenship and investment. And they were the ones who basically were involved in the lobbying of the government of Malta, the government of St. Kitts, to launch their own programs. And Kaylin had this idea of views doni. Traditionally, you have two different types of citizenship acquisition mechanisms. One is just uh, solely, and one is sanguinous, right? So it's by blood, by soil, you were born in the United States, you're a U.S. citizen. You're born to German parents, you're a German citizen. Citizen. So his justification was actually, if you're donating money to a country, then that entitles you to some sort of economic reward and you could probably be entitled to become part of that country. This is obviously an extremely controversial idea in the first place to accept that somebody who's never been to your country even is a fellow citizen of yours. One example that's not by donation is Olympics. This is something that people don't talk about that often. A lot of countries allows people to naturalize as citizens of their countries if they're an athlete. So China has been doing this outwards. For example, there are a lot of ping pong players, table tennis players, from China that were recommended to acquire foreign citizenship in countries like Kazakhstan, in Singapore, in Canada. Because basically a lot of the best income players in the world are Chinese and the Chinese national team was very worried about the fact that they would just end up playing themselves. So by suggesting that their players naturalize in other countries, they're actually maximizing the possibility of Chinese gold medals. Of course, the other country, the countries that are recipients on the receiving side are receptive to it by the idea that you can just become a citizen of a different country without any meaningful connection to it in the first place has always been quite controversial. The thing is, if you look at the countries in the Caribbean that are offering CBI programs, these are the ones that are economically more vulnerable, right? We're not talking about Jamaica. We're not talking about even Haiti. We're talking about countries that have 30,000, 40,000 people by population. And CBI, I think, offered a very clear pathway for these governments to acquire a lot of wealth very quickly. And these are the countries that generally have very good passports because they're small countries. Obviously, the the St. Kitts passport is better than a Haitian passport, but just by its sheer population and sheer size. And these are mostly recently independent. And by recently, I mean late last century countries from <laughs> the British Empire. And generally that has grounds for easier and better passport visa-free access. So we're talking about the five countries in the Caribbean that offer CBI programs. These passports usually have 150 countries that are visa-free, including the Schengen Zone and Great Britain. Canada used to be visa-free for most of these countries, and I think they got rid of that for a while. I think that's coming back as well, but with a fine print in the terms and conditions. You have to have applied for a Canadian visa before, or you have had a U.S. visa before to be qualified for these visa-free access. Yeah, you see, you raise a very good point about the less say the sanctity of citizenship that's a very latent intuition that most people have. And, you know, that's why I wanted to write a paper years ago and call it Inward Grace for Sale based on that same quote I mentioned from the Prime Minister of St. Vincent because he really framed it as if citizenship 
is this kind of holy grace from heaven. I mean, it's biblical language, right? Yes, exactly. It's very biblical language. And you can't really acquire it for money. And I think that's completely incorrect. In my view, I take the market viewpoint where anything that can be done morally good for free can be done for money. And there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to, in theory or in principle, acquire citizenship for just investment of any kind. I always give the example of a person born in St. Vincent that essentially doesn't do anything besides take money from the government. Why should that person have more credible call to someone actually give the government a $300 million and build some roads? And you could go down the line about that kind of economic adjustment and economic measurements. But I always thought the simple idea of because money was traded, therefore it's somehow tainted, that kind of tainted good symbolic language, I think was always kind of incorrect. So usually when people have this conversation about citizenship and that language, I'm like, no, let's stop there for a bit. There are other reasons that we'll get to for perhaps having some objections to the CBA programs, but simply by some kind of semiotic objection is what the philosopher Jason Brennan calls it. Simply saying, ugh, I don't like it. It's not a good enough reason to think something is in principle, you should be against it. And that's always a problem with the conversation that it always starts from this semiotic objection and therefore people think it's a, a valid argument for the conclusion of let's not have this CBA program. I also think that there is this projection from countries that are sort of more major players on the global stage. The idea of, say, global border regimes have become very consolidated in countries within the European Union, the UK, the US, China, Russia. The idea that actually we should have all these guardrails and these mechanisms to prevent people from becoming American, to prevent people from becoming Japanese, to become Russian. And that's being projected upon the region of the Caribbean. This sort of nationalism or this sort of national identity formed upon the idea of citizenship it just doesn't exist as much in other parts of the world as it does in national nationalist superpowers. And at the same time, I think we'll probably expand on this a little bit more later on. People who buy these passports in St. Kitts, they're not going to move to St. Kitts, or very mm-hmm. few of them will. So the impact on, say, ideas of gentrification? What if there's a huge immigrant population? What if people who are originally from there can't afford housing anymore? These are just not as big of a concern as immigration is in many other countries. So I think that's a very important sort of factor to it. I definitely agree with that. And there's another small nuance point with the Caribbean that doesn't come up too often. So the Caribbean has always been a population whose geography is very much in flux. So for example, you have about half of the 3 million people live in Jamaica, give or take that number. There are about another 3 million of Jamaicans living in the US and Canada and Europe, but double essentially population, half population live, live, live outside. But those people still consider themselves Jamaican as those people think of themselves as being from Jamaica, though they probably haven't even been Jamaica. Because of the first empire type structures and the geographical they have outward service migration, those kind of things, the idea of the nationalism that is often associated with small Caribbean countries is actually that more of that cultural thing. So essentially, that's the Bertrand Russell version of nationalism. The only justified nationalism is that cultural affinity you have to a shared identity. Now, that's been kind of the Caribbean way for quite a long time. But the idea of nationalism based on border and based on the idea of people kind of being born there is this really key part of the 
social identity is not true in the Caribbean. Given that someone is born in the Bronx and have a Jamaican mother, Jamaican father, and they consider themselves as Jamaican as someone born in Kingston. That is really how it is. So being born on a particular land population, landmass, has really been watered down in the Caribbean for generations as a signal of your kind of belongingness to that identity. Because now when you have the idea of people buying passports for sick kids, never being sick kids, people in sick kids don't reconsider them petitioned per se, consider like a watered down version of something. It's a whole separate thing. It's just an economic, very clean economic transaction. There's no one kind of misunderstanding what's happening. Of course, when it comes to the US people, as you mentioned, they're the ones who misunderstand very clearly what happened. And that's where I think a big part of the philosophical difference for sure comes in, in many aspects, given that the US in some ways also has an investment program. I think that's a really great point. On that point then, because there are other places that do not necessarily a direct citizenship application filing for economic gain, but I do have residency applications. Could you discuss some of that before we go on? Sure. I think the bracket of citizenship by investment is a big term, right? It's a loaded term. So I think there are several different categories that would describe this kind of schemes in general. So there's citizenship by donation, right? It's what we're seeing in these Caribbean programs where you donate a set amount of money or, you know, depending on how many people that you have in your family, within six months, you get a passport. That's the most direct program that we're talking about. But there's also sort of citizenship by investment. For example, you buy a house. Seven years later, you can probably sell it, but you can get the money back theoretically. And this is also popular in these Caribbean programs. And then there's sort of residency by donation. The most well-known one would be the US EB-5 program, which is practically an investor visa. I believe it used to be $500,000. I think that's been raised to $800,000. I'm not exactly sure. But basically $500,000, you invest in one sort of project that's being accredited or certified by the U.S. Censorship and Immigration Services. And a few years later, you get a green card. And then a few years later, I think five years of living in the U.S., you can become a U.S. citizen. That has been around for a very, very, very long time. And it's extremely popular amongst upper middle class or wealthier immigrants to the U.S. because it's not a very expensive rate given. Chances are you're going to get your money back. And there's also programs like this in the EU, like Greece has done ever since their economic downturns back in, well, I guess more than a decade ago. Um, they have been doing this residency by investment program. I think they have specific fine prints to it, which is you're not allowed to work in the country, but you can travel in and out of the EU. You can be self-employed. You can work on your business in a different country while you're living in the EU. And the other thing is, I don't think there is a very easy pathway to citizenship. There's also that. Those kind of things are very popular. Thailand, for example, offers a long-term visa for retirees. Malaysia has that program as well. These don't lead to citizenship. And Rashid, where you are in Panama, there's the Friendly Nations visa. There's also mm-hmm. all sorts of ways to get permanent residency in Panama. And I mean, a lot of Latin American countries as well. So that's always been around and more popular in these, what we call like Western countries, I guess. And some of these countries themselves also offer citizenship by investment programs per se. Actually, passport sales by donation. Malta in the EU has been doing that. Cyprus did that for a while, but they had to pause the program, even so the passport to Jolo, the notorious Malaysian fugitive. Ah, did they? Yes. And Jolo had a passport from Cyprus and another passport from St. Kitts. I think both of them have been revoked ever since these acquisitions have been discovered by the media. Very controversial. And then there's Portugal. 
Portugal did something that was very similar, but I think you have to go to Portugal a few times to actually get the citizenship. It's way more common than just a handful of countries. I think Montenegro tried to do it, but I think they're trying to tone it down because of objections from the EU. They're trying to join the European Union. It's kind of ironic given that a lot of these EU countries themselves have these programs. Vanuatu has a program that's more controversial because... I think the Schengen states have recently revoked their visa-free access given that their due diligence wasn't good enough or something like that. These programs have been around for a fairly long time and they're more common than the Caribbean countries. But I think what makes these five countries special, there are two things. One, people who get these passports do not want to live in these countries. They use it for backup purposes. They use it for tax purposes. They use it to travel more easily. If you're Chinese or Iranian, you don't have one of these Western passports. It's harder to travel around in Europe, in North America. I think that solves a lot of problems for a lot of people. And the other hand is the gravity of these programs in local economies. We're talking about in some countries, 50% of the government revenue in some years come from CBI programs. And that's huge, right? That the Caribbean case is special because because their economies are so dependent on passport sales themselves. So I think that's what makes it more interesting. Yeah, dependence on passport sales for government revenue is probably the most under-theorized and under-discussed aspect of Caribbean economic diversification in the last 50 years, at least for these five countries. People think of a by-the-way industry that happens on the side with the main thing being tourism or exports and so on. But it is a substantial, in some cases, see, um, currently major industry in the economy. As you mentioned, there's some countries that 50%, or even some that we looked at recently, that 60% of non-tax revenue is just from passport sales. That is a tremendous, tremendous proportion of your conference one industry. So this is a new monocrop industry mm. in some ways, right. except being even less stable. There's something you said in passing that I think should be highlighted. You said that when, for example, Jolo was involved in the whole 1MDB thing, all that came out, that Cyprius and St. Kitts revoked the passports. Now, as a barbarian citizen, the government cannot revoke my citizenship if I were to do something highly unorthodox or illegal. God, that's just not something they could do. But in this case, St. Kitts are able to do it. And that kind of highlights me one weird thing with the Caribbean CBI is that they're less deep in terms of the true normal utility or true normal interpretation of what citizenship allots to somebody's person. For example, even in St. Kitts, people who acquire the passport via normal economic contribution don't have voting rights. Now, that's the one thing every citizen knows that they have. I can vote for the government because I am a citizen. That's it. one thing is kind of across the board. But no, that's not the case in the, for the many Caribbean programs. And the whole is able to revoke the passport under X and Y, you know, persona and conditions. That's a very weird thing also. The way it seems to me that like in many cases, when we're talking about citizenship by investment in the Caribbean, it really isn't the same kind of thing that citizenship is normally invoked when it comes to vocabulary intuition. And I think that really clouds a lot of the conversation because people think it's way more concrete than it actually is in many realistic respects. Yeah, totally. I think there are also precedents for this in other countries. For example, in most Western countries, there are legal 
process for the revocation or reversal of naturalization, denaturalization, I think mm-hmm. would be the right word, on grounds of, say, you lied about something in your immigration application. Mm-hmm. You found out that you lied about what your parents did or where you were actually from. You were a terrorist in your naturalization application in Canada, for example. I think there's legal ground for that. But it's very rarely executed, mm-hmm. of course. And there's also international law conventions and regulations about whether you can or cannot make a person stateless. So if a person is only a citizen of St. Kitts and he or she has renounced all other citizenships, I think it becomes trickier as to whether you can actually revoke that citizenship, given that that individual will be effectively stateless, which is not good. But for, I think in Jolo's case, it was a lot clearer that you know, he was a fugitive, he had Malaysian citizenship by birth, and he never renounced his Malaysian citizenship. And by the way, for those who don't know, Jolo was just like, <laughs> like I think we just assume that people know about these weird sagas, but he was involved in the uh, corruption case of one DB scandal where he helped the former Malaysian prime minister embezzled a lot of money. And he funded the uh, Wolf of Wall Street the film. There's that, yes. Kudos to him in that particular regard. Yeah, there are some really fun images of him and DiCaprio on the boat party. I'm like, oh my goodness, what was going through their mind? This is a random Malaysian guy funding a entire movie. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other thing we can get into at some point in time. <laughs> now, a lot of the pressure on the CBI programs obviously comes from, I guess it's not obvious to most people, but a lot of pressure does come from the US government and various agencies involved in such. But I think that one of the things they don't get is the sheer economic contribution. We kind of mentioned it just now, but the sheer economic contribution that these CBI programs give to these small Caribbean countries. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to kind of emphasize this particular aspect of it before we kind of go into why the counter arguments primarily from the US come up so often. One thing before that is the fact that you know, the US counter arguments doesn't seem to be about the economic reliance. They're more worried about the security side of it, right? Like, no, I mean, in terms of the well, when you have to weigh the argument, at least from my conversation also with people from that side of the debate, they don't you know, understand how large of a part these CBI programs have in the economies. Let's say you have 2% of your GDP being part from CBI. And you can say, okay, well, therefore, guys, hey, we can reform this, we can work with this, we can diversify from this, we can make moves quickly to get away from being all these CBI people come from mostly China is the argument in your country. But if the program is actually 40% crudely of a GDP contribution, then to even start the conversation. It's a very different kind of conversation pathway you have to have because the idea of diversifying 40% of your economy away from a thing, that's almost a non-starter in many, many cases. So that's what I kind of mean by how they don't get why it's such a large contribution and therefore the start point for the conversation which is primarily security-based is often a bit crude. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. I think a good example to US officials would imagine would be something like Turkey. The Turkish real estate market is actually a lot more dependent on passport sales because the, the easiest way is to buy a house in Turkey. In some parts of the country, it's very economically dependent. But it's nothing like if you just cancel the program, you know, the economy is going to take mm-hmm. a hit, but not as much. Again, we're talking about countries whose government revenue primarily to some extent it relies on these programs. So now, what in your view constitutes the major counter arguments from the EU or from the US. These are primarily the ones who make the arguments about the CBI programs in the Caribbean in particular. I think one major part would be 
sanctions. It seems to be the first thing that comes to mind after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And that's when I think a lot of CBI programs in the Caribbean started to stop issuing passports to Russians. And a lot of the EU programs were closed during that time. I don't know whether they were, that was because of the US pressure. I assume that would play a big part, either explicitly or implicitly. And then obviously, I guess like the global war on terror is officially over now, but terrorism being a part of it. And these are in the brackets of due diligence. And then, of course, we're seeing, I think, what I see as more paranoid reactions. Things like there are a lot of Chinese investors these days, Chinese people trying to buy passports because for various reasons, partially because there's capital outflow, doesn't actually do that much by acquiring a foreign citizenship. There's things like international travel being more convenient with a foreign passport, etc. Of course, with the usual paranoia against what the U.S. might think of as like mass Chinese migration, that becomes a huge problem in their view. These are way more innocuous and for reasons I think we'll probably expand on later. But I think these are the sort of the bigger brackets. Yeah, so let's do that. There is a very pronounced view in many parts of the U.S. establishment and in U.S. think tech land. They think is a communist plot afoot, essentially, to get more Chinese people in the Caribbean for various potential reasons. Now, one reason is that we've both heard this reason recently is the Communist Party of China wants to get more Chinese people in the Caribbean because these people can therefore vote on policies that the CCP prefers are more lenient to the CCP's ambitions in the Caribbean and the Americas. That is actually something we've heard very credible sources say. <laughs> it's frankly ridiculous. There's so many layers <laughs> to this discussion. I don't even know where to start. But for starters, as we've mentioned earlier, you can't just become a citizen vote, right? In many cases, you have to live there of some sort, establish residency, have an address, and then you can vote. Second of all, we're talking about mostly Chinese. These are people who are buying passwords Mm-hmm. to potentially leave the country, leave China, or to move their assets out of China. They're not the ones who want to go to the Chinese government and be like, hey, now I've acquired a foreign citizenship. I want to help you interfere with the politics of other countries. I don't think that's something that anybody would do. And just third of all, we're talking about countries, again, with 40, 50,000 people. And you know this better than I do, that the politics themselves in a lot of Caribbean countries mm-hmm. are not exactly impartial. There's a lot of explicit, implicit corruption going on within the CBI program itself, of course, but also just in general. I think there are <laughs> way easier and cheaper ways if the Chinese government wanted to, to interfere with local politics. And in fact, I've been talking to a lot of Chinese sort of passport agents and they sort of advertise the fact that San Quezanivas and I believe... St. Lucia. St. Lucia? Yeah, St. Lucia. Doesn't have diplomatic relationship with China. Mm-hmm. They advertise these as selling points because they're not in touch with Beijing. They have diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. The Chinese government doesn't have to know that you have this passport. And by the way, because of the Bandung Conference in the 1950s, China does not allow dual citizenship. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But if you naturalize as a foreign citizen, then in most cases, you're not allowed to keep your Chinese citizenship, even though this is actually enforced very loosely. It's like a situation where it depends on where you're from in China and like where you enter the border and what passport you use. So it's very easy to keep both passports. Most people do it by not entering China using a foreign passport. So there's a a point you mentioned, because we've said it several times, but let's expand on it. People don't typically live in the Caribbean countries. That is, of the growing up in the Caribbean, it's obvious, of course. But there's a point that escapes a lot of the conversation. People seem to 
don't even visit ever the Caribbean countries. Where are these people buying their passports and going to? Well, actually, I think mostly are just in China. We're talking about people who are paying money to acquire citizenship. Well, if they were moving to the US or if they're moving to Europe, I think there are other ways for them to spend a few years there and just be a citizen. There are many pathways to do so. As I mentioned, the EB-5 program, the, the Greek program, and these people are rich enough. That's not particularly hard. And I think that the appeal to the Caribbean programs is exactly that they don't have to go anywhere. This is what the Chinese passport agents will call right? to immigrate, but not to actually emigrate. You are acquiring a different citizenship, but you're not actually leaving the country. They keep it in their vault, in their back pocket, something like that. And when they need to open a bank account, for example, overseas, or they're trying to go to the Schengen area, which is notorious mm-hmm. for granting very short-term visas. You can be a billionaire and they'll give you like a three-month-long single-entry visa to Malta, which is very odd. But you know, that's, that's usually been, been a problem that I've been hearing. You know, that's what they do. They don't leave the country. They're just in China. So what else? Because it seems even to me that spending at minimum 100,000 US dollars for the potential of, you know, I guess potentially if you are that rich, I mean, you should probably go to Europe pretty often, but essentially for a free visa, an easy visa access to some countries, I assume primarily Europe and so on. It seems like a lot of money just to spend for that purpose. What other reasons do you think are people primarily buying these? And is it overwhelmingly a large portion from China? What other reasons are Chinese people buying these passports in Caribbean so much? First of all, and I think the most obvious case is beyond sort of the China example. Even the US a lot of sort of quote-unquote digital nomads are buying Caribbean passports or trying to get foreign residencies. I think there's just a whole movement that is anti-taxation, libertarianism of some sort that sort of push for this idea that actually I need to have as much economic freedom as I want to or as I should be. It's primarily for optionality and safety. I think that's a very big part of this. And in the Chinese case, it's basically like I might be staying in China right now, but I might not in a few years. When that happens, that's a plan B. That's a backup plan. Mm. Another thing is there's a lot of false advertising going on <laughs> in this business. And by that, I mean, for instance, in the past two or three years during COVID, a lot of Chinese business elite are very angry that the Chinese government was trying to keep everybody at home. Obviously, that was a very controversial, I mean, it was widely supported policy in 2020, 2021. But towards the end of 2021, 2022, the sentiment became sort of much more antagonistic because people in Shanghai were stuck at home for like three months and nobody could leave. So there was a lot of paranoia in many ways justified in the Chinese population. They're like, get out of this place. We have to have other plans. This is what they call like Renxue, to run away from the country. And at the same time, the Chinese government was limiting who could leave the country during COVID, which I thought was very funny because they do it on two grounds. One is public health. They're saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing non-essential travels and that being implemented in the Chinese political system, unless you could prove that you have to travel, then chances are the border agent is going to block you from leaving the country. And I just think part of this is just a lot of people suspect there's political undertone to it. People in China aren't allowed to leave anymore. The Chinese government is actually going to close down the country. I'm very skeptical of it. As COVID is now over, I've been crossing Chinese borders. These cases are completely gone. I think there's a much more charitable view of it or an interpretation of it, which is they're just really bad at their jobs and they're just, just how Leninist system works in many cases. It doesn't work that well. But people have been worried, like, what if I can't leave the country? Should I get a different passport? Actually, a lot of passport agents 
started selling that point to say, if you don't have a second passport, there's a chance you might not be able to leave China. But of course, the truth is that even if you had a second passport, you wouldn't be able to leave China either. Because unless you renounce your Chinese citizenship, you would not be able to leave China on a different passport. And when you leave the border, you're still seen as a Chinese citizen. The whole thing about a second passport could help you avoid an exit ban, which is increasingly uh, common in China, unfortunately. But that's just not how this entire system works. And there's a component of false advertising that plays on this business elite paranoia and sort of fear that the Chinese government would be very unfavorable to their departure. I do wonder when we check the numbers, if we will see a uptick or a dramatic decrease in numbers of sales pre, post, during COVID. I'm curious what those will be. I also know that some countries like St. Lucia, they added in a new route to passport sale, which they call a COVID relief bond, I believe it's called. So you can donate directly to the COVID bond. Such flexible terms. But you could qualify for the passport. So we definitely have to check numbers on that for sure. See how that kind of checks out pre and post. But one thing you said that really strikes true. It's actually conflated the idea of the libertarian movement. When I say movement, I mean literally this, this, this expansion of people having these thoughts. And in terms of more security, more freedom, more flexible, that ideal cosmopolitan lifestyle. And of course, I think if you are, for some people, they can perceive themselves to be under more security risk if they live in a particular kind of country and they actually have the money, then they may actually in large numbers, take the option to buy a different passport. I remember there was a advertisement for the Antigua passport program. It was targeted to Nigerians. And it had like a Nigerian family that they were interviewing. And they were saying, yeah, you know, my country is not very stable. It's corrupt and so on. It's what they're saying. It's mostly true. And they wanted that stability, that outside perspective to get out of the country and so on. So of course, you know, if you have a lot of money and you live in a communist country, yeah, there are some details there that you might want to have a backup plan. It's very easy to understand, essentially, is what I think people are missing. I think there's a very good example of that, which is there's this YouTube channel called Yes Theory. I sent you the link some time earlier, but one of the hosts of the YouTube channel is an Egyptian national. And the thing about that is you have to do military service, but he left the country when he was younger. So if he goes back to Egypt, he will have to do military service. But because he hasn't done military service, he was denied passport renewal. So he couldn't travel for long his time. So he bought some kids passport and that's some problem. We've been looking at the list of applicants and successful applicants in Dominica, for example. Mm -hmm. right? The names of these applicants are being published by their official gazettes. Well, sometimes it's a poor record keeping, but sometimes occasionally they publish a list of everybody that's been naturalized in the past six months. And what we're seeing is like a lot of these are Chinese names, but a lot of them are Middle Eastern names. That's a lot more common than both of us expected. There are a lot of Middle Eastern applicants as well and North Americans, Europeans. They don't specify nationality, but they do have listed names. So just guessing. Yeah, I can do some natural language processing to kind of guess better about that. It just seems to be the case that a lot of large numbers issue where there are just so many wealthy Chinese people. So if they're doing a the thing, it shows up more pronounced. It just seems that that's like a big factor. Especially when it's a small country, of course, it would be even more pronounced in that thing just because there's so many people. And then Russia is no longer allowed. Exactly. <laughs> It's unfortunate. I think that's a very unfair recommendation from the US and EU to just trap people who have nothing to do with the war. Even though they have money, they can't get out. One of the other examples where you should be able to acquire citizenship if it is allowed for free, it should be allowed for money. 
And it's usually, in most cases, is hey, it, people are innocent until they're proven guilty of any kind of potential issue. And that's where you have to do diligence program. You know, similar to Venezuela, many Venezuelans also buy. I would assume should, or if they could, buy different passports as well. Or just, I guess in that case, a lot of Venezuelans just moved to Spain. And by the way, the due diligence problem, I think should be noted, that are not due diligence done by these governments. They're third-party due diligence. They're actually very expensive because if you look at the market prices for these passports, it's about $100,000. Due diligence fee added, you're looking at like $110,000, $120,000. It becomes a lot more expensive. These are not cheap services. Yeah, the applicant also has to pay the due diligence fee. The due diligence is done by if third party, usually some kind of law firm, which in turn would outsource to some essentially record keeping firm and due diligence firm, which I assume the law firm also gets some portion of the revenue in some way, I'm sure. And that is how it's done. And of course, there are ways to get around that to be less diligent in the due diligence. There are ways to do that. And that's how people can kind of skirt some of these issues. But again, I think people, not I think, we, we know firsthand, people over-index on the issues when it comes to the people who slip through due diligence. And unfortunately, I don't think it's a slip like any other system that, as we mentioned kind of before earlier in the show, that Caribbean governments actually have a streak of corruption and you can always pay a little extra to get things done. And that is just a small country government mentality across the board with very, very few exceptions. So people kind of over-index on it and they, therefore the program is bad, but that's nothing wrong with the program. That is a, you are, in my view, implicitly saying, well, Caribbean governments can't govern. We can debate if that's true or not. Obviously, you know, that can go in direction. But that's not a CBA problem. That's a Caribbean governance problem in general. And I think that kind of over-indexation on the CBI issue, risk of due diligence, is too often brought up in this conversation, unfortunately. I think it's important to note that as of, I think, last year or this year, if you fail the due diligence in one country, say, if you fail your due diligence in Antigua, you're not allowed to actually file an application in any of the four other countries. Or you can't apply for a passport in Grenada. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit tricky. And, you know, speaking of corruption, a lot of the most prominent cases that we've been seeing of, say, Joe Lo, but also, say, Justin Sun, mm-hmm. who was the uh, founder of Tron, is a Chinese-born crypto, quote-unquote, entrepreneur. I think that's a <laughs> liberal use of the term. Well, so he acquired Grenadian citizenship and he became their representative to the WTO. So it's very unclear to me if that was part of the citizenship investment program, even though people attribute it to that, because he got a diplomatic passport and that he got a political appointment that was very, very prominent, like high visibility. I'd say the other person I have in mind is Xiao Jianhua, who was the Chinese-Canadian entrepreneur slash, I think he was like an investor or something. He was a real estate developer that had ties to certain Chinese government officials. He was living in the Four Seasons Hotel in Hong Kong for many years before he was kidnapped to mainland China. And then he was detained from there onwards. He had a diplomatic passport from Antigua and Barbuda. So how did that come about? You know, you can't just go out there and buy a diplomatic passport from the citizen by investment programs. So it must have been some other sort of story. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. And there's this other example. I'll give this point first. One of my favorite stories, because it's not well known in the Caribbean either, but there is a program called the Antigua and Barbuda Special Economic Zone. And it essentially is a SEC, a special economic zone, being developed by the Antigua government in conjunction with a Chinese quote-unquote billionaire, Yi Dajang. Uh, Yi Dajang. Right, right, right. And I certainly cannot find 
sharing any information about him online. But in any case, he's now an Antiguan citizen and he's the chairman, Ida Zhang, of the Antiguan Barbuda Special Economic Zone Commission, of course. And he's also buying a lot of land in Antigua to build these resorts and build these medical schools and essentially a large laundry list of amazing projects that almost none have actually materialized and of course caused a lot of tension in the country. And But that's our example is he didn't just do that because he paid for the money and just bought an Antigua passport. That was it. It just magically became all these things. He bribed Likely, of course, I have no proof of this. <laughs> he bribed in some way the government, and that is how these things happened. And that's just my speculation, of course. And people will say, oh, therefore, this is their CBI program. No, CBI program worked well. He's probably has a clear record. I don't know, but let's say he does have a clear record. He passed a test, but that doesn't actually mean anything when it comes to these other things. The same thing, Justin Soon, the same thing, Naomi. Ida Zhang, the same of many other situations like this. Antigua in particular has a situation where they have their very loose definition of what counts as a diplomatic post. In the sense that they have a thing called commercial diplomats, where the government grants people diplomatic status in reciprocation. Those people kind of be in these foreign countries and essentially tries to drum up more business for the government. In my view, I don't actually see a reason why that's wrong in principle. I think that's fine. These are small economies. We can't afford to have a really well-linked ambassador in the Middle East. If you're the very rich person in the Middle East that knows all the people that actually wants to do some business in the Caribbean on a up-and-up way, why not give him a different passport and say, hey, bring some money here. You get this extra benefit. Okay, I think that's actually fair. There are examples but people don't call because they have been no scandals of that being the case. And I think it's a fine in principle. But it's that point out that this just happens all the time. The Ida Zhang thing in Antigua, the Justin Sun thing in Grenada. As far as I can tell, the Justin Sun thing in WTO didn't produce any scandals. He essentially did everything well enough. Of course, he had his, he used it for his own personal gain. That's fine. I'm fine with that too. But to say, therefore, it is some issue of CBI, it's not clear to me that you can make that link so forcefully as what others have done very recently. That's exactly right. Even though I disagree with a lot of the conventional concerns about CBI programs in the Caribbean, I think I do have some concerns about the economic overdependence that we're seeing right now. And there are a few risk factors, right? One example would be the value of these passports are in part predicated upon the fact that there's visa-free access to these places that you usually don't get visa-free access to. What if that goes away? And we're seeing that in Vanuatu when the Schengen area revoked their visa-free access, what happens next? Your passport becomes, it is worth less than it used to. Another example would be, what if the Chinese government, for example, says we should start cracking down on this sort of stuff. We should start cracking down on people who have like two. I don't think it's likely, but not impossible. What if, say, the US government bans Chinese citizens from applying to these passports the way that they ban Russian citizens? I don't think it's that likely, but still possible. So there are all these risk factors that if any of these happen, they could slash these passport applications by like 30, 40%. And when 30, 40, 40% of 50% of your government revenue is slashed, then that's a pretty big deal. These are some valid concerns that I think should be raised in this context. Or it could be something as innocuous of the European Union making it easier for Chinese to get long-term residencies or visas. That could be a thing. I don't know what conditions that would prevail, but that could be a thing as well. That could also cause substantial decline in demand for Caribbean passports. And yeah, it's a very 
good point. It's close to my view as well on the core critique of the CBI is that when you rely so much on a precarious demand, you are in a very odd position because you now don't have a way to reconstruct that demand in some other industry quickly enough to prevent a very large economic shock, external shock as it were. And that is to me the constant problem of Caribbean economic development policy. Governments successively do not plan policy in a way that actually makes it more optimal for long-term growth and long-term sustainability. And there are many examples of this across the Caribbean countries. Unfortunately, I think CBI is essentially used as a cash cow without much long-term planning. Sure, yes, exactly. And it's not apparent to me either that the revenue that is being generated from CBI is actually reinvested into capital projects that can generate more revenue in the future and actually can lead to better foreign currency inflows and all that kind of stuff. It seems to be like a crutch to do current account support. Now, as we kind of go into this topic a bit more in our research, maybe that might not be the case, but at least from the cursory inspection, that does seem to be the case. That's a problem. But again, this is, to me, not a unique CBI issue. This is an issue of Caribbean growth policy in general. And once I think you contextualize it in that sense, then the oddness, <laughs> use that term, of the CBA revenue and the CBA revenue reinvestment does not actually seem so odd at all. And I think that's one of the major issues I see when people kind of bring something in different contexts. They always use CBA as some aberration, some economic aberration. I'm like, no, this is a properly contextualized Caribbean developmental story that just isn't optimal. And that is actually par for course when it comes to Caribbean policy. I think that's exactly right. And part of that is against the sort of moralistic story <laughs> of it, right? It's right. like, oh, should citizenship actually be a commodity. And, you know, I think we can have a hours-long debate about that. I do think that that idea is being challenged. One of the main crises of the issue. Exactly. So, tell you, I think this is a good place to stop our preliminary discussion. And we're definitely going to have another one of these conversations where we go into the report a bit more and have some results uh, to share with everyone. But thank you. Thank of you course, so much yes. for coming on the show today. It's been a very fun conversation. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad we had the chance to have this conversation. Thanks, Rashid. Perfect.